we can, I think now, impact on significantly the desire of many police departments as well to fundamentally change the way they police. There are new questions being raised about policing in the U.S. Are police different in the U.S. than there are in other countries? And I think that if law enforcement agencies across this country can buy into the understanding that building trust and humanizing one another has an impact on decreasing crime, then I think it'd be a no-brainer for everybody to practice that concept. The defining event of 2020 was the murder of George Floyd by police. The resulting wave of protests called for widespread police reform and an end to racial injustice in the United States. Then on January 6, 2021, the U.S. Capitol was attacked. The stark difference we saw between the treatment of white insurrectionists in 2021 and Black Lives Matter protesters in the summer of 2020 once again exposed systemic racism with which the U.S. must reckon. As the United States grapples with the question of effective police reform, we ask which policing models in other nations have succeeded, which have failed, and what can we learn from them? This is State of the World, produced by the World Affairs Council of Connecticut. I'm your host, Amanda Jolly, and on this episode, we talk with Dr. Lawrence Ralph. He is a professor of anthropology at Princeton University and director of their Center on Transnational Policing. This episode is moderated by Council CEO, Megan Torrey. It was recorded on September 16th, 2020. Dr. Ralph, it is a pleasure to have you. Welcome. Thank you. Can you set the scene for us? How are we here today? Yeah, I mean, I think that when we think about, you know, American exceptionalism, there are some great things that we often like to think of our country that sets us apart. But there are also some things that set us apart from the rest of the world uh, that have been the source of heated debates and they can't be disentangled from the problem of policing. One is just the propensity of guns in the country and also the kind of legacy of uh, slavery and of racial discrimination. And I think you know, both of these issues tie into policing because they have to do with how certain groups have been labeled as criminals. And therefore it's been uh, uh, what we allow uh, police officers to do to them in the name of safety and security. And part of the story of, is mass incarceration and, and part of it is uh, police violence. And so if we are to address these problems, we have to address them on the scale that uh, we approach problems like gun, gun violence in our, in, in our country, which uh, I think people recognize is a, a large scale national problem that is going to require a lot of buy-in from the public to change. So you just said it. So for too long, um, and you've written that this, uh, a culture of American exceptionalism has been a barrier to the implementation of policies that improve public safety around the globe. And, you know, sitting here in the, in sort of in the world of international relations, one of the things we love is sort of comparative, um, comparative politics, looking at other models. Why has it been so hard for the U.S. to look at other countries, see what they're doing and sort of, um, you know, take lessons and models from what's happening around the globe? I think uh, 
you know, the particular strand of exceptionalism that makes it hard for the U.S., I think, has to do with states' rights and the history of states' rights in our country. And when it comes to policing, that has a major impact because a lot of uh, the programs that are implemented worldwide have to do with national oversight and have to do with training police officers uh, the same way throughout a country and also holding them accountable the same way throughout the country. And things that I think the public often assumes that we already do, but that we don't do, such as keeping reliable records uh, on police violence throughout the country. And so it's even hard to uh, understand the impact of police violence because we have 18,000 different law enforcement agencies in the country. And this you know, ranges from sheriffs to police departments to FBI and, and DEA and uh, different organizations, each with their own standards, each with their own different sets of uh, records and each with their own training, each with their own ways of holding uh, each other accountable. And so, uh, the biggest, one of the biggest issue is how to standardize all of this so we can see the problem as clearly as possible in order to affect change. Is there an example of a country, uh, you know, somewhere in the world that has done a great job at police reform? Um, and, you know, in parallel, is there an example here in the U.S.? Yeah, well, when we see the, uh, what we think of as the safest countries when it comes to police violence. We often look at the Scandinavian countries and you know the population is vastly different uh, and also the propensity of guns is vastly different uh, and the history of racial discrimination is vastly different, which makes the comparison difficult. But we, what we do see is the standardized way of training and we do see the question of police is not divorced from the question of public safety more broadly and security more broadly. And so when we think about the roots of crime, those roots are often entangled in things like providing education, making sure people have housing, making sure people have uh, food security and food options, right? And what the police do in our country is often react to these larger systemic issues without dealing with the root of the issues themselves. So in this country, what we've done is starved our social service sector that addresses the roots of poverty and therefore crime. At the same time, we've bolstered up our police state as the solution. Well, in the other countries where they're uh, safer and they have a more successful uh, rate of dealing with uh, police violence, they have a, a huge infrastructure for social services that the U.S. just doesn't have proportionately. And when we talk about um, the, the second aspect of your question, uh, where in the U.S. do we see uh, these things working successfully? A lot of attention has come uh, to Camden recently because uh, they, uh, the Camden police force 
had, was abolished and reconstituted. Uh, and that oftentimes is a, a way to talk about whether or not we should or should not engage with this question of defunding the police. Um, you know, again, it's hard to look at one example, uh, but I will say that when we think about this question of defunding, what it really is, is a question of how do we reprioritize what we spend taxpayer money on in the name of public safety. And so I don't want to lose sight of that question. The key question is, how do we think about what the police actually do? And how do we think about whether or not they are the best institution to do those things? And then how do we reallocate funds in order so that we ensure that the people most equipped to address societal problems are the ones that are addressing those problems? Um, we hear the term qualified immunity a lot in the news. Um, and also, you know, we've made changes to qualified immunity here in the state of Connecticut. Do other countries have similar laws? Um, and would revisions to qualified immunity be, be effective police reform, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, other countries, I would say, do not have the same barriers towards accountability. And Qualified immunity is one of those major barriers uh, towards accountability. Uh, and so I think that we have to address all of the barriers. Um, a, a lot of them are legal. Um, e even before we get to the question of qualified immunity, which you know um, kind of shields police officers uh, uh, from facing accountability because other police officers haven't been held accountable in the past. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, but um, uh, Tennessee versus Garner Supreme Court decision was also a, a major uh, a barrier towards accountability. And what that did was to say that if a police officer feels threatened, then they can uh, re react with deadly force. And the key part about that is the subjective feeling of being threatened, which is very hard to prove. So what you have to do to prove that is to get into the interior state of a police officer. And that separates the question of whether they feel threatened from whether or not a reasonable person would be threatened within that situation, right? And we as citizens aren't held to the same standard we can't just kill somebody because we feel threatened by them. We actually have to kind of prove that our life was threatened in a reasonable way. So the, the kind of subjective benefit of the doubt that are endowed to police officers because we as a public believe that the occupation is inherently dangerous, that in and of itself has been a barrier to holding police accountable. Then the ma other major thing that uh, we often talk about nowadays is police unions, which uh, protect police officers because even if a police officer is held accountable, even if uh, the, the rest of the police department says, you know what, based on our standards, what you did was unacceptable and you can't work here anymore, they can then get a job at another one of these 
thousands of law enforcement agencies that we have in our country uh, and they can maintain their livelihood. So there are a lot of loopholes towards accountability that other countries don't have uh, that we have to think seriously in the US about whether or not we want to maintain. So can you speak to the entanglement of police unions effect on politicians and how that may create barriers to US citizens creating change? Um, have you seen uh, similar parallels in other countries? Is this, you know, are there global examples? Yeah, I mean, I think there's similar strategies of the entanglement with police and politics. Uh, and that is most prominently based in uh, or on the politics of law and order that we do see in other countries and other um, uh, democracies. We see it right now in Brazil. And so what's happening is that it is, you know, easy, it's easy and it's, um, it's convincing for politicians to invoke the, the politics of law and order and to say that your streets are dangerous and that you know society would dissolve into chaos were it not for the police. And therefore we need to bolster the police state. But again, what that kind of rhetoric misses is the very uh, valid concerns that people have about public safety and the historical injustice, the historical injustices that the police themselves have perpetrated, not to mention the fact that having police officers heavily militarized in the streets um, has the effect of um, uh, creating more violence a lot of times. And we've seen that and recently in, in cities like Portland. And so uh, there, there is a way in which, again, the politics of law and order can be a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Is there a connection between authoritarian regimes um, and the rate of uh, police violence against its citizenry? If so, you know, are there common sense measures and initiatives that um, will insulate um, police from political impetus of authoritarian, uh, authoritarian regimes? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the key connection is the ability, the ability of uh, the politician to mobilize the police in a way that um, uh, kind of squelches uh, rights and, and and freedoms that you know we hold there in in democracy, and so that we've seen this relationship. Uh, through various assaults on rights and, and freedoms in this country. Uh, I don't know if uh, many of you recall, but earlier in the summer, uh, we saw a, a CNN reporter, I believe his name was Omar Jimenez, uh, be arrested on TV while covering protests uh, by the police. And this is, you know, the erosion of one of our, our, our fundamental freedoms, that is freedom of the press. Uh, we also see, uh, again, protesters being um, um, instigated by police officers uh, to react and then therefore being, re being arrested. And we see that as a, you know, a fundamental erosion of our right to protest and, and our freedom to protest. And I think that once 
um, the police are are wielded in this way uh, that um, you know fundament, fundamentally contradicts uh, basic rights. That's when you get the uh, the erosion of the democracy and the uh, bolstering of the authoritarianism. As we look at this current moment, as we see sort of a national and global outcry in response to police violence and sy systemic racism, to what degree do you see an opportunity to create lasting change? Um, what needs to be done by police forces, by the government um, and the public to ensure that this is actually a real opportunity to make transformational change? Yeah, I mean, I think it starts with um, the public. Uh, and I think that earlier in the summer, we saw a, a huge opportunity because people were noticing for the first time that it wasn't just people of color who were out in the streets protesting about police violence. And, you know, a lot of news publications called this the most diverse and generational uh, protest in some time. And I think that's really important. That can't be underestimated. Um, you know, often spurred by the uh, George Floyd death and the Breonna Taylor death, what happened is uh, a very multi-generational, multi-racial coalition came together to um, talk about the problem of police violence and it became readily apparent. And I think, you know, we cannot underestimate that. That is uh, a once in a generational phenomenon. And what I hope that the opportunity is uh, for people is to see that the way in which these larger problems connect to other large scale problems that we face as a society. So I don't think it's an accident that this, um, multi-generational, uh, multi-racial coalition comes together in the height of a pandemic. I think we're seeing stark contradictions of our American democracy where a lot of people who never felt vulnerable before are feeling vulnerable and are realizing that they are not being provided for in the way that they should be provided for. And we saw that with the inability to get masks. We saw that with the inability to get tests for COVID. We saw that with the inability to just return to everyday life and go to school and work. And um, that vulnerability is something that other segments of the population have felt for a long time. And particularly around the issue of police violence, African-Americans have felt that same vulnerability, that same uh, governmental abandonment for a long time. And so, the coalition is dependent on other people seeing that and other people demanding of our government ways in which uh, to provide for the well-being of the uh, citizenry. Are there global examples of police forces uh, being successful in tackling um, racism and systemic, systemic racism within their police forces? And the other issue has to do with gender. Are there police forces that have done a better, you know, around the world, better with gender balance? And if so, are the outcomes of, you know, having a more balanced gender police force? Is there research on that? I'll take the, the last question first. I think um, 
both in terms of gender and race, the police force is actually a lot more diverse than a lot of institutions. Uh, particularly when it comes to race, there are a lot of, uh, of officers of color throughout the nation. Um, and while we see that that does make some difference, it's not enough to change the um, inherent effect of um, policing certain populations in a discriminatory way. Uh, that is because, you know, I, I talked a lot about accountability, but the flip side of accountability is incentives. Like what are the incentives for you to rise within the ranks of the police officer? Uh, oftentimes telling on your fellow officer pertaining to the, the rules uh, marginalizes you and puts you in a position where you can't get ahead. So police officers are socialized very quickly to uh, keep their mouth shut if they see if they see something someone doing something wrong, and therefore uh, what is rewarded are arrests. Uh, what is awarded are this idea of keeping the bad guys off the streets uh, in a way that can perpetuate uh, racial discrimination and inequality. And so again, in order for those kind of interventions around um, identity to make a difference, we also have to look at the, the entire structure of, of a police officer, um, including uh, how they rise to the ranks, how they maintain their livelihood and their security and, and, and pensions. And unless we deal with that, I think that we're gonna still have the same issues. Again, the, the question of, um, racial discrimination in other countries are, is hard, but there are examples of countries that have had profound uh, changes in the way that uh, they deal with uh, structural inequality. And one example uh, is, is the, the Republic of Georgia. And when they transformed uh, their police department after kind of gaining autonomy uh, from the Russian Confederacy, they, you know, drastically implemented uh, a bunch of new reforms that increased public safety. Part of that had to do with um, almost creating the police force anew and um, uh, uh, firing a lot of departments that existed in the past and reconstituting them with uh, different uh, members uh, in the name of the public good in a different way. And I think, you know, we have to think about uh, some drastic measures that, that we have to take in order to kind of reconstitute the police force because at the heart of it is a question of trust and legitimacy. If we don't have trust and legitimacy, it's hard to have anything else in terms of uh, law and, uh, in terms of uh, law enforcement. So we have time for one uh, last question. So I'm going to ask you, um, you know, what is the best case scenario for police reform in the U.S.? Um, do you have a vision of what justice would look like in, in the U.S. policing system? Yeah, I mean, I think the best case scenario is to really um, take an audit, you know, and I think that taking an audit will require thinking about what we use the police for. I think 
a lot of people have the idea that uh, if we didn't uh, have the police, that society would descend into chaos, that we wouldn't be able to solve things like murder and rapes uh, in our society. But we have to realize that the police don't actually do a good job of solving those major violent crimes either. And that's not the majority of what they do. Uh, so there was a New York Times report that recently came out and it said that 4% 4, 4 of what police actually do are solving those major issues uh, like murder and rape. And so that's not a good uh, uh, percentage. So the question then becomes, what are the best ways that we can solve those problems? What are the best ways that we can grapple with the insecurities that people face in society? And um, having a reactive police force that are, are reacting to things after they happen, uh, it's, it's kind of like uh, the healthcare system when you react to a disease after it already takes place, the best way is to be preventative. So I think the best case scenario is to you know, have a whole scale audit and rethinking of what public safety means and equip the best people uh, to, to solve those uh, problems. And it, it will take the buy-in of the public in the same way that it will take the buy-in of the public to address gun violence in the same way that it will take the buy-in of the public to address climate change. But I believe that police violence is of that scale and on that level that we need to fundamentally rethink the ways that we've been doing things in this country for a very long time. Dr. Lawrence Rolf, thank you for joining State of the World today. We appreciate all of your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. That was Professor of Anthropology at Princeton University, Dr. Lawrence Ralph. You can read more from Dr. Ralph in Foreign Affairs Magazine and pick up a copy of his latest book, Torture Letters, Reckoning with Police Violence. That does it for this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And for more content like this, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CTWAC or visit our website at ctwac.org. Thank you for joining us for State of the World. Until next time.